Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Today's topic is a CCIO roundtable, navigating digital transformation in the NHS. Here at Evolution Recruitment NHS, we are committed to helping individuals and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to build trust and develop meaningful relationships with individuals to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I'm Matt, I lead Evolution's efforts in the Southwest, and I'm your host today. The views shared by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisations. Today, I'm joined by Bishoy Dimitri, CCIO at Oxford University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, Luke Gompels, CCIO at Somerset NHS Foundation Trust, Mike Green, CCIO at Torbay and South Devon NHS Foundation Trust, and Adam Dangor, CCIO at University Hospitals Bristol and Western NHS Foundation Trust. Before we delve a bit deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Bishoy, can I start with you? Yeah, good morning, Matt. Um, so my name is Bishoy Dimitri, as you mentioned. Um, I'm the CCIO at Oxford uh, University Hospitals. I've been there for just just under a year now, um, but also working uh, clinically as an A&E clinical fellow, uh, which is interesting. Brilliant. Thanks, Bishoy. And Luke, if I could come to you next. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Matt and, and, and everybody. My name's Luke Gompels. I'm Chief Clinical Information Officer at Somerset Foundation Trust. I'm a rheumatologist by background. I've been at the Trust um, about 13 years or so and, and working within uh, the realm of digital for um, the last uh, six to eight years. Thanks for that, Luke. Mike, coming to you next. Hi, thanks, Matt. So I'm Mike Green. I'm a surgeon at Torbay uh, Hospital. I'm CCIO for Torbay and South Devon, which is an interesting organisation because we're an integrated care uh, organisation as a trust. So that uh, includes community and social care as, as, as part of our portfolio. Uh, I've been a consultant for uh, 18 years and the digital lead uh, for about 17 years. And I wrote my own job description for CCIO about 16 years ago. Brilliant. Cheers for that, Mike. And finally, Adam, if I could come to you next. Yes. Um, hi there, Matt. Um, I can't quite match uh, Mike's level of experience, but I have been CCO since about 2016 when we became a global digital exemplar, allegedly, here in Bristol. Um, I'm based at um, the BRI, but we recently, well, not that recently, we joined up with Western, so now a, a joint trust. Um, I'm also an oncologist. I treat lung cancer and sarcoma. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now the introductions are done, we're going to move on to the topic in focus. So everyone has brought a question or statement they want to discuss with the group. And I'm going to start with Bishoy, if that's OK. Can you share a bit of your role as a CCIO and how it intersects with digital transformation in healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes absolutely hand in hand um, because any digital transformation um, that we encompass in healthcare um, is always trying to support clinicians and patients uh, at the end of the day, because that's why we all go to work in the NHS at the end of the day, it's for the patients. Um, and that can be sort of in a way that tries to support clinicians to do their jobs more easily, to be a help um, and give them more time to be at the patient bedside and doing the things that actually make a bigger difference in a patient's sort of journey uh, towards bringing them back to, to health, uh, to hopefully discharge them from the acute setting. Um, but also, I think it's um, important to try and um, utilize um, change management as part of the process. Because what I've quickly begun to learn, begun to begun, uh, excuse me, begun to learn, is that um, the tech is actually the easy part. 
the difficult part is the process management that goes behind trying to get teams involved as part of their um, sort of transformation journey to adopt the actual digital transformation, whatever it may be. And no matter how good it is, you know, you can never just expect organic growth uh, to just sort of uh, disseminate across the organization. You always need to guide, teach, learn, and, and hear the feedback of uh, the users, the patients that are involved within whatever the, the digital transformation may be. So yeah, so being a CCIO, you need to have a transformation and change management hat on as well, um, especially in engaging sort of stakeholders to make sure that whatever it is that we're doing is safe and effective. Um, Brilliant. Thanks for that, Bishoy. Mike, could you add a little bit to that as well, please? Yeah, sure. I, I just want to follow up. I completely agree with the, the the big part of the job is the people part of the job. I, I couldn't agree more with that. But we're dealing with with three very different groups of people sometimes. Uh, and that's where I see I see the challenge, uh, particularly. So I've got, you know, the team that I work with in the informatics side in the health informatics service. I've got my clinical colleagues and then of course I've got got the patients that we have to look after and it's very difficult sometimes to keep those three strands running uh, in parallel or sensibly so for example for the for the his when things get challenging it's 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 very easy to kind of fall back into we're deploying an IT system and forget and then with the clinicians they uh, they want to deliver patient-centric care of course but IT doesn't deliver care clinicians do so when people talk about IT that's patient centric yes but it needs to be meeting the needs of the clinicians because they're the ones who are going to deliver it for the patients but at the same time and this is where my uh, my area of real interest is it, it's about how do we use technology to put the patients into a better position so they have better ownership of the healthcare. I, I won't talk about it in detail because I know that we're going to go into that in more detail in a minute. But yeah, it, the, the challenge of those three things, different groups of patient people with, with different understandings, different motivations, different patterns of behavior, how do we keep them all aligned? Brilliant, thanks for that, Mike. Um, Adam, I suppose on, on the same question there, as, the, as a little bit about your role as a CCIO and how that intersects with digital transformation, given what both Bishoy and Mike have discussed, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. Sure, I, I agree with everything the colleagues have just said. Um, as a CCIO, we're the sort of a bit of an intermediary between digital services, the transformation team, the senior leadership team, the clinicians, um, other colleagues in the trust. So we're sort of working between and we're one of the few people in the organisation that does work very freely between those different groups. I think it you know, there are different ways of being a CCIO. I think if you're a massive IT nerd, you can be a bit removed from your clinical colleagues because they just think, oh, well, you you know, you know how to do it because you're a coder or whatever, you know. So it's quite useful if you need a bit of understanding of digital, but I don't think you need to be massively into it. And sometimes being massively into it is a disadvantage, I think. Um, when it comes to trans, I, you know, I don't, in a way, digital transformation, it's transformation. Everything in the trust involves digital. So I try and get away from putting us into this silo of digital transformation. If the, as a trust, for example, we're trying to improve how outpatients works, that is gonna be underpinned by digital. So we've got a patient engagement platform so that patients can access information, we can share information, gain information from patients. We're digitizing notes, so we're going off paper, um, putting notes direct into the EPR, which is then shared with colleagues within the trust and with primary care, social care, et cetera. And digital is underpinning all that, but it's not 
it's not a, a digital transformation project it's an outpatient say transformation project so i think we need to get away from seeing this silo and unfortunately when organizations see digital in a silo that's when it goes wrong brilliant chase that adam uh, luke coming to you on on the back of what the what the guys have just been discussing what's your opinion on all of that thanks Matt. i mean this is going to be a great podcast because everybody's agreeing with each other so <laughs> you know it's for me it is all of the above and it's great to hear different experiences within the role um, and my own journey, you, you know, from perhaps being outside of IT and um, very much embedded in clinical work to being much more involved in some of the um, IT and digital leadership planning would reflect all of those stories um, about how you can be involved at all sorts of different levels as that kind of glue or interface between different parts of the team that themselves can become a bit inwardly focused, whether it's our clinicians about the work they're doing um, uh, or IT folk putting in systems uh, that, that don't necessarily do the work. Um, it's it's other people that, that, that need the information and most importantly, patients, as we heard there. So it's kind of all of the above. And for me, I think the big learning point is there's not there's not a sort of an imperfect way of well, there is an imperfect way of doing things. Um, and that's to to not think about it carefully. But sometimes, you know, bits of kit do come into existence and work very well, and they're put in, in quite a traditional way. Um, uh, and we can't always get it perfect with all of those different groups involved. So uh, you know, there's lots of programs that go on, um, but our aims and ambitions for all of them and our principles are, are what's important for me. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Luke. Bishal, did you want to come off the back of that? Yeah, I just wanted to sort of echo what everybody's saying. Uh, and like Luke said, this is going to be a really, really good podcast uh, because of because of that. But I think Adam made a really, really good um, shift in perspective, which I think is really key for organizations to sort of take away. And it's definitely something that we're trying to do more of in Oxford, more so in the converse, which I'll explain in a second. But the fact that, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be a digitally owned pro like project or transformation work. It should be owned by whichever sort of stakeholders or users are going to be on the ground floor, whether it's outpatients or whatever, or theaters with digital sort of oversight and input. And I think that's really key because they are the ones that are going to be looking after this going forward we can support with maintenance you know from a digital perspective but you know they're the ones that are going to be using it day in day out and they should they should have ownership of that conversely usually when things go wrong and there are whoopsies across the organization or an incident they come to you know usually as part of the action uh, after action reviews people come to the digital teams especially in my forums and say we need a digital solution for this and what and my team if they are if any of my teams are listening to this uh, podcast um we, they'll be sick of me saying this, but we commonly go back to them and say, but your underlying processes aren't good enough. So even if we have the perfect digital solution brought in, it's not going to work because your your underlying sort of whether it be outpatient process or whatever it may be, or you know admin process is flawed. Therefore, the digital solution won't provide any success really. And we need to work in collaboration with you to find a solution with a better process maybe for you. Um, so I think that that's quite key. And I think that plays on and just builds on the fact that that point that Adam said. So I just wanted to make that that distinction there so yeah thank you brilliant thank you for that Bishoy Adam just off the back of what Bishoy has just sort of elaborated on what you discussed do you want to add anything more to that 
Yeah, I mean, as Bishoy said, the systems we have aren't perfect. So that's one, you know, as a CCIO, sometimes you're having to explain why the system we have isn't perfect, but also people do to a certain extent have to change the way they work. And that can be unpopular, difficult and resisted. So sometimes you're trying to push forward motion a bit faster than maybe departments or individuals are willing to do. So you're seen as somebody pushing things forward a bit, you know, sometimes a bit too quickly. On the other hand, other colleagues think we're the blockers to innovation because they come with the latest app that they've just been shown. They say they want to involve it, you know, bring it into service. And you have to be the sort of person who says, well, unfortunately, it doesn't integrate with our EPR, our digital services department hasn't got the bandwidth to sort that at the moment, you know. So, so sometimes you're moving too fast and sometimes you're seen as a blocker and it's a very difficult balance to get right because we'd love to be innovating and bringing all the newest stuff in as fast as possible but it's not always possible so um you know that that is the challenge in being a cco i think brilliant thank you for that thank you everybody for your input there next i want to come to you luke with, with the question that you brought if you don't mind um in the realm of digital transformation how are you ensuring a patient-centric approach and what do and what role do patients play in shaping these initiatives so just before we we sort of pose that question to the rest of the group could you give a bit more context to that yeah no i think i think this is a fascinating area and one we you know i'd conscious of michael's comments and and his uh, interests and expertise in this area so it'd be great to pick up some discussion around um, the patient, the patient-centric approach is obviously key um, in terms of making sure uh, that that everything we do uh, supports improvement um, uh, and in in patient care. But but that that doesn't always mean um, that we don't do things that are right for the clinicians that are involved, you know, in delivering that care because. Because actually, uh, by by saying that getting it right and uh, having less logons, for example, for a clinician, that means they've got more time, you know, to spend with a patient doing the the things that matter. So it's really about sort of shaping shaping that the, the question around what is it you're trying to achieve ultimately, um, and and indeed focusing on the user, if you want to, you know, use that that term, actually can support. Um, freeing up time for other things or not staring at the notes or looking at a computer screen in the side of the room. So for me, that's that's the first part of that question, which would be great to explore. And then the second part um, of that question um, is also crucial, and that's how do we involve or go even further, co-produce or um, have um, genuine uh, engagement with citizens and patients in the design principles uh, and the implementation of of what we're trying to achieve with with digital and in turn with our services in general. So I'll I'll stop there because I think there's two great areas for discussion. Brilliant, thanks for that, Luke. Adam, can I come to you first on that one? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, completely agree that there's that initial thing of patients are you know first of all with CCIOs we're also seeing patients so. We are, you know, I think I think it's very easy to say let's set up pa- um, focus groups and let's talk to patients. But, but we speak to patients all the time. You know, I did a clinic all day yesterday seeing loads of patients and I can see, you know, they express frustrations to me when they have problems or, you know, lack of information, etc. So I'll come on to that. Um, so I agree with Luke. We need to be <clears throat> some of the systems which Im- improve how we work 
help patients. They make us more efficient. Patients are always astonished you know, if they come in and we haven't got a scan report from another trust. We haven't got the letter from the, the, the colleague who saw them three weeks ago at a neighbouring trust. Why don't we know what they said? You know, some of the absolute basics that digital underpins. Um, then we need to share information better with patients. So, you know, we uh, many of us share letters as standard with patients, but how can they access them? Um, you, new ways of consultations, the video consultations, et cetera. So, um, the, you know, that's revolutionized things locally, bringing, when COVID came, you know, we were suddenly doing remote consultations. So we're doing telephone and video, which we weren't able to do due to contractual issues before, which has made, you know, it saves so much time for patients traveling, coming into the trust, especially patients I know well in my oncology practice who I might see regularly. And I can see them in the comfort of their own home. They're sitting on a sofa with family and they're speaking to me on video and, it, and it's been transformational. But then coming on to patient using, um, using things, um, we are beholden to a certain extent with our suppliers. We can't, you know, necessarily guide exactly how our suppliers uh, provide software for patients. But one thing I do say is when they do bring products to us, I think, you know, you we, we've all been patients. We have family members who are patients. Um, one of our suppliers came to us showing a potential portal for a patient. And I was saying, you know, when they showed the, the mock up, could your mother use this? Could your brother use this? And they said, well, yeah, maybe not. And you go, well, why are you showing me? It's clearly not ready for ready for going live yet. You know, you've got to get the basics right. And we're not even doing the absolute basics yet. So um, finessing things and optimising is, is yet to come. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Adam. Bishoy, could you could you carry on from where Adam left off, though, your opinion on that? Yeah, he beautifully segued into into my point. Actually, I'm loving the cohesion of this podcast of all the uh, of all the other members. But yeah, I think I think the first part of the question in terms of um, you know the patient centric approach, I'm not really going to touch on because I have a strong ethos that that's the reason why we walk into work every single day. As I mentioned before, it's all there to serve the patient. Um, but in terms of utilizing um, sort of patient groups and things like that, and thinking of the patient when designing patient facing products or, or systems is absolutely key. And sometimes overlooked and I, I haven't come across any organization that does it perfectly just yet or really well uh, as an exemplar but we're all on that learning curve um, and I think you know like Adam said like it's really important that we we make sure that it's accessible by all of our population of patients not just sort of those that might be digitally savvy we need to think about those who maybe don't have access to smartphones or those who don't have access to computers even what resources do we need to do and integrate with our communities uh, and i'll be interested to see if mike you know working in, a, in an integrated trust if there are any solutions out there whereby you know we have uh, schemes or projects with local libraries where patients can come and access their their records there now obviously that brings other issues in but maybe not be a private enough area for them to access sort of their letters and things like that that people may be able to read off their screen but you know is there anything more that we can do is there local uh, could ICBs be doing more in sort of linking local charities to acute and primary care trusts to um, to be able to support them in accessing patients and trying to upskill patients in sort of their digital literacy to support with them accessing their records 
uh, hearing about pod, uh, the the portals as they're becoming increasingly more uh, embedded within the NHS sort of app and the system. Um, there is more that we can be doing, and I think we and in Oxford are trying to start that journey um, with patient representatives starting to attend our patient-facing groups and and getting us involved with local charities. But we're still not quite there yet, and I think there's a lot more on that that journey that I think most NHS trusts are still on as well. Brilliant, thank you for that, Bishoy. Um, Mike, just just on that on that same question of ensuring patient-centric approach and on what role do patients play in shaping these initiatives, given what both Adam and Bishoy have contributed so far, what, where is, where's your head at in regard to that? Yeah, so I'd, I'd just come back to my the point I made earlier about technology does not deliver healthcare as, a, as an underlying principle. I think that otherwise we're doing ourselves out of a job, aren't we? What I want to talk is about, from that point of view, three things. I want to talk about technology, I want to talk about leadership, and I want to talk about authority. So in terms of technology, our journey in Torbay in terms of electronic patient records, we tried about 14 or 15 years ago to create our own electronic patient record from a health information exchange. So um, in our case, it was, it, it's been into systems health chair and it's very similar to the Orion platform. So a lot of you will be familiar with that technology as underpinning shared care records nationally. So we tried to do that at a local level to set up an electronic patient record with some of the functionality um to build a single data model for our patients because 14 years ago there was no electronic patient record that would work in the acute and in the community and it would bring to primary care certainly not social care so we tried to create uh something that, that, that we would see as being a single data model for a patient with a single patient identifier and to cut the story short it does not work and it doesn't work for two reasons um, the main reason is because we just don't have the right level of interoperability yet, despite all the promises that we've had from companies, from the NHS uh, in, in its various guises over the years. We do not have the interoperability standards that everyone can work to, to, to use that approach. And the second reason which builds on that is that even where we do have interoperability that works very well, for example, for sharing uh, blood test results electronically or clinical narrative in the form of a letter electronically, there isn't that interoperability around workflows. So you can't set up a workflow that will run from a hospital EPR or health information exchange through to uh, a primary care and community care facility so that everyone's all on the same workflow. We just don't have that solution available to us uh, yet. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll in the future. So that's why my organisation is in the middle of an EPR procurement and I can't talk any more about that, of course. So that's the first thing is, is, is patient-centric care from a technology point of view, I think requires a single data model in order to be able to do all those things around sharing information, but also to allow, um, to allow clinicians to share their workflows and to allow multidisciplinary, multi-professional work across multiple sites. So that's the first thing. So the next thing is, how do we get there? Well, we get there with, with leadership. And every year, I try and persuade my medical director, and I've been through at least five medical directors since I've been in this role, to at least take on some of my portfolio, specifically the leadership element of it. Um, and I've really, really struggled. And I have to say, the current medical director I've got is, is fantastic, and she really gets the benefits of digital transformation and the challenges as an organization that we're going to face. 
which is just as well because we're about to implement an EPR. Um, and so the third thing then is authority. And I really like that point that came up just now about um, being shown an app. And, uh, and I, you know, how many times do clinicians who are enthusiastic for this sort of thing come to us with this amazing shiny app that will solve all of their problems? And my heart just sinks, not because I don't think it's great, because usually it is great. It's a fantastic interface. It does what it says on the tin but it doesn't link into that single data model that we need so that we can leverage the workflow that's maybe being delivered through that app through into other parts of the organization. So if there's something in, in let's say in orthopedics that will allow them to do uh, a much better consent process, but it's standalone, how does that feed into, or how will it feed into our electronic patient record? So how do we as CCIOs have, uh, how are we going to be, be given that authority what is the role of the ccio in 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 authority so my expectation is that 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 you guys will perhaps have something that you might call a clinical design authority but what's the scope of that design authority what what teeth does it have to actually make things happen what can you do to say you know no to people who want something shiny that they really like without disenfranchising them or risking them from disengaging from the work that you're trying to do Brilliant. Thank you for that, Mike. Uh, Luke, coming full circle back to you with this being your question, where what have you sort of taken or, or what do you want to sort of discuss with the guys that have just give their answers? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And, and again, for me, there's what great journeys to hear that people have been on. Uh, some of them a bit painful at times. Um, and, and Michael, you know, heading towards uh, the, the electronic patient record, you know, as a as a huge program of work for for an area or an organization um we've got a similar you know situation as in an electronic health record across somerset uh, which we've engaged um, um with all of our uh, our different groups including patients you know very deeply and and it's a kind of life cycle point for me that that when that that is the 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 dominant focus of course there's the consolidation of systems but it but it shouldn't stop people from thinking about apps and how they're used in their clinical practice and how they solve problems it's just that when you're going to put in a whole system change which is i think what you're describing then then things start to focus down on that for understandable reasons um, but that that system goes without saying you know could be in 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 use for a long time and that leads me to a second reflection about uh, you know to be honest a sense of disappointment um about where the level of technology is compared to our day-to-day -day lives you know where we've got very slick seamless technology that's had an enormous amount invested in it um perhaps um you know at the sake of us losing data um uh to to third parties but equally it, it leads to a level of expectation um that that we perhaps can't achieve with the envelope of funding that we're using you know within healthcare which is which is a disappointment and i'm just going to disagree a little um with adam you know or, or challenge rather and and that is that i think sometimes we have to accept a, a fixed point you know with the level of digital technology that we are engaging with and not use that fixed point as an excuse not to work very closely with our patients uh, in order to navigate and understand that and I had a really compelling session that I was a part of yesterday about experts by experience which is people who've had experience uh, within uh, their own uh, 
um, health challenges that that lead them to have you know significant expertise in in, in where they would see uh, things needing to change or be improved um, or are very good and bringing those individuals in very much into what we're doing even though sometimes the digital technology can't keep up you know is important because we can accept some of the fixed points that we have and understand how we can make them better. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Luke. Mike, just jumping straight back to you on in regard to that one um, and what Luke was discussing there. Yeah, so I, I, well, I should just want to clarify that I, I, in terms of shared care records, we still invest in a shared care record and we'll continue to do so. In terms of apps, I, you know, I like apps, but they have to stand on their own merits. Um, it's it's just how do we how do we take that further forward? I guess is is the challenge um that i'd like to see addressed at any rate uh, brilliant thank you for, thank you for that mike i'm i'm going to stick on you mike if, if that's all right for the next question uh, which is the one that you brought um and that question is what can we learn from the consumer and commercial sector about how to use digital to engage with our customers so what does this mean for the business model of the nhs and how might this impact the care of the digitally disadvantaged just like luke did could you give a bit more context around that question yeah sure so this is an area that i've, I've been interested in in for a long a long time and, and i did the, the the dissertation for my masters was in this and if we have time i'll talk a little bit about that but um whenever we Whenever we go on holiday, if you think about 10, 15 years ago, might go to the travel agent, leave through some magazines, tell them where you want to go. They'll book the flight for us. You turn up at the airport, you queue, hand your passport over, you queue a bit more, your bags get weighed, loaded on. You go to the um, security area, you queue and so on. And it's not a great experience uh, for the for the user, for the passenger and presumably for the airline and the travel industry that's expensive having people standing in a queue and having people manage them. Whereas the experience now for a lot of us is we go online, we book a flight, we book a hotel, we get a great selection, we can turn up in the airport, we can check ourselves in, we weigh and measure our own bags, put the sticky label on the bag, put it on the conveyor belt ourselves. There's maybe one person who's helping, but you only need one person because most people are quite capable of sorting themselves out. Security, well, you know, sometimes that's another story, isn't it? But at least that's only one queue that you're in and then you're through and the other side. And there are two things about that. For me, as a service user, I feel that I have ownership. I've got great choice. Arriving at the airport, I'm in control to a greater or lesser extent. And then the benefit for the industry is a huge uh, admin burden that's been lifted. Uh, hopefully they've got better opportunities for communicating communicating with their customers and so on. So what is it about uh, healthcare that we can't or are struggling to engage with our customers in the same way that the commercial and consumer sectors have, for example, travel, banking, shopping, and so on? Why are we still lagging so far behind and why are we, why are we failing to leverage some of the um, some of the uh, the opportunities there. So I appreciate that the drivers are, of course, very different for our economic, our economic model. Um, so I did a, 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 a short bit of research in my clinical practice where I uh, just asked 400 of my patients, bearing in mind my demographics tend to be of a certain age uh, and older, and a lot of my work is, is breast cancer surgery, so they're, you know, they're, they're women. Um, which skews it and 
of the people who responded to the survey, over 80% of them had used the internet in some way to look up information about coming to the hospital. And top of the list of things that they looked up was car parking. <laughs> but the second thing that they wanted to be able to do was manage their own appointments if it wasn't convenient for them. And, you know, they struggled to do that. And actually, you know, looking up something about breast cancer or what they may or not have was, was quite a long way down the list. They were quite interested in some of the people that were going to come see. But the thing they were most interested in was the kind of pragmatic self-management side of things. So at the very least, there's an opportunity for us there with that 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 sort of evidence. Um, and then taking it further than that, uh, the, the dissertation that I mentioned, I um, uh, basically validated questionnaire for follow-up of, of patients with breast cancer and uh, put that into a, a, an online uh, platform, online portal, which, which worked really, really well and had an opportunity to take it further. But actually, as a result of my research, I decided that actually the best thing to do was not to see any of my patients for routine follow-up, but just to give them open access to the service instead. Um, which created a huge opportunity in terms of clinical capacity, but it was almost an unintended consequence of a digital project that I ran. But one of the interesting things that came out of that was that as part of the portal, patients, this is going back about 10 years ago, patients had immediate access to their blood test results. It's just one of the things that we set up for them. Um, and this continued for anyone who registered with this particular platform and continues to this day. Uh, but then I kind of, kind of forgot about it because it wasn't linked into that single data model that I mentioned. So we never managed to take it to an operational level. We couldn't join it up properly with our patient administration systems and uh, and the things that actually make the hospital work and my clinical colleagues use. Um, but then I found out a few years later, after I kind of forgotten all about the project, but it was still running in the background, that there are significant on my patients who were getting their blood test results come back while they were having their chemotherapy. And there was basically they were self-managing their white cell counts in the sense that they would get their full blood count live off the machine pretty much and go, oh yeah, that 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 looks okay, uh, or it's a bit low. And maybe they'd phone their nurse and say, oh, did you know my white cell count was a bit low? And the nurse would say, yes, that's fine, or no, we ought to see. But it was just interesting that actually patients were really, really, really keen to engage. But then the final thing about the economic models that I did get back was my oncologists were really, really worried that I'd said, you know, we're just not going to fault any of our patients unless there's a specific reason. So for me, that would be because they're on a reconstruction pathway, for example. Um, and that creating capacity, the oncologists were worried that their clinics, uh, if they didn't have all the easy patients, they'd only have the difficult patients and they wouldn't have time to look after the difficult patients. But what we actually found was that by by uh, not seeing the routine patients, OK, the difficult patients are still there, but they're no longer quite the same difficult, challenging patient because they had time to see them. They become the rewarding patient. And so that fairly quickly, fairly quickly went quiet. But how do we join up those strands? How do we take those opportunities of, 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 of digital to create? I, I hate calling it efficiencies, but create transformation that creates time to deliver care and at the same time increases uh, or empowers patients. Brilliant, thanks a lot, Mike. Adam, I want to come to you first on that one, if you, if you could start us off with that. Mike's, Mike's raised so many issues. You know, my clinics are absolutely paired to the bone and all the patients we see have big decisions to be made and it is quite a, therefore, quite a mentally taxing clinic. 
Um, but it's essential because otherwise the clinic would just fall over with the number of patients we need to see. I mean, as you say, with the holiday thing, it's sort of the difference between being paternalistic and having empowered patients, isn't it? So in the past, you had a, you know, a holiday company that would book your package and they book the flights and they tell you this is a great place to go and here's a nice hotel. And now you you do your own research and you find out the cheapest flight and you find the nice hotel from reviews, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's all about giving the patient information and some you know some clinicians have been a bit reluctant we're a bit wary about it when we started copying all our letters to patients still some of my colleagues don't you know i've been copying all letters to patients for years i can think about one or two where it's there's been a slight issue and normally that's a misunderstanding rather than any problem it never you know it's generally a a great safety thing we make sure the patients have the same information the, the information from the consultation is in that letter which they can read share with their families the same with results there's a lot of worry about sharing results with patients but yeah brilliant i loved you know my young patients on chemotherapy i love it if they take an interest in their blood tests because you know it's passing a little bit of responsibility they know oh, i've got a temperature the white cell counts low that's a more of a problem so i think ha patients having access to as many results as possible is great and i'm sure we all have episodes when us or a member of our family has um, had hospital attendances and it's very frustrating if we can't access results and information about our own care. So that is something that's coming. And one of the big advances, I think, is is the fact the NHS app is getting a lot more development now. And I think that's a brilliant, you know, one of the best initiatives in the NHS recently was to sort of really encourage the NHS app to do more and more. And I think COVID again helped that. So patients are starting to access letters, appointment management, through the NHS app and linking to patient engagement portals. So I think we really are empowering patients and it will mean we can leave patients to guide a bit more of their care, not make routine follow ups that aren't necessary. And, um, you know, I think that engagement will make the, the, the journey much more satisfying for patients, much more efficient, much safer um, and takes some of the onus off us as care providers. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, Bishai, coming to you next. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, I just wanted to just echo what, um, what Mike and Adam said, but definitely something what Mike said triggered sort of a thought for me um, in what he was mentioning about trying to get his sort of team of, uh, of the oncologists to try and reduce the number of just follow-ups that they have to those that actually just need the follow-up because we've empowered the patient more. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear what my colleagues on the call um, think about this, but definitely thinking about the organizations that I've worked at and thinking with sort of more of an operational hat um, is sometimes when we do digital transformation or we have some sort of digital solution that we bring in, unfortunately, unlike the private sector, as Mike alluded to in the question, we add in more steps than we do take away steps. And sometimes that can cause more of a hindrance than a help. And Essentially, what the the example that Mike gave, you know, in terms of the, you know, finding an, uh, you know, um, a holiday and and checking in online by yourself and doing most of the steps by yourself, it's quite a streamlined process. It's pretty straightforward. It's not difficult. However, what we usually find in the healthcare setting, and I know healthcare is a little bit more risky and a little bit more sort of multifaceted, but it becomes more cumbersome. We're just adding more bolt-ons to the same sort of form or process. And it becomes just a real sort of roundabout, a spaghetti roundabout of, of difficult choices that clinicians make. And, and that's where error occurs because we've created all these different options and functionalities. Um, and so that's where I think 
we need to be better to be more agile in the way that we do things as in digital. And I think that's something that definitely the private sector does much, much better than we do. But I encourage sort of my colleagues to correct me if I'm wrong or if they don't feel that that's the case. But that's definitely been my experience. Luke, you had your hand raised on that one. Do you still want to go on this one or? Oh, where do we start? I mean, I think I think Mike, I've I've heard you argue yourself round in two ways. The the genuine innovator who's um, put in a piece of technology uh, which has solved problems and worked closely with patients, uh, and simultaneously it's not tethered with the underlying data platform uh, for which uh, for, for for which you're also working on. And I think that sums up a big challenge around the data and and how we, you know, we have this genuine need to work. Um, together to have the data available and importantly wherever the data is available that it's being accessed safely um, and monitored and tended to so that it just doesn't end up with people dropping in information that's not looked at by clinicians so there's a big piece on process there as well and i'm a bit cautious about extending uh, the analogy too far with holidays and healthcare because i think they are very different as as bishoy said and and the the needs and worries of people when they have concerns about their health or or their well-being is affected you know must feel quite a different start point and um and and yet they do get involved uh, as 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 was really highlighted and researched into in a transactional process that means that we need to make that transaction as smooth and as uh, as as least painful as possible um, and so many of these things can help so it's a fascinating insight into what what sounds like a, a really interesting long-term piece of work that highlights as adam said lots of lots of challenges but also some opportunities to to get it right brilliant thank you for that luke mike coming full circle back to yourself would be in your question yeah thanks i just want to pick up on, on what bishop said which is uh, i will all be familiar with bill gates second law of automation is that if it's inefficient operation, that will be magnifying the inefficiency if you incorporate that into your into your IT. And I think that this is a recurring thing that we see in in design in healthcare, whether it's an anaesthetic machine or a clinical process. If someone picks up on something that is a safety issue, then the easy thing to do is to add an extra alarm to your anaesthetic machine or to bolt on something extra to the clinical pathway to mitigate the hazard when actually what we want to do is to look at the whole process from a holistic point of view and in context and look at the opportunity to redesign the whole of that the whole of that section does that make sense and so just to to sort of explain why my particular pet project failed it failed because it relied on nursing workflow and it was a bolt on to nursing work workflow. And I couldn't find a way of integrating the technology in such a way that it works with the technology that they were already using to manage their workflow. It was one or the other. And they chose the one that was established. And I had to respect that because that fitted in with the trust's IT strategy at the time anyway. Um, so, so absolutely, you know, we can't we can't uh, go around taking IT solutions and bolting them on to current processes because that will undoubtedly make things uh, sort of less efficient, more inefficient. Inefficient. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Mike. Um, Adam, I'm going to come to you with your question next. 
um, which was there are generally two ways of doing an EPR implementation, procurement of a comprehensive package and a big bang launch or expanding use of existing software with incremental enhancements or add-ons. Um, you sort of want to explore what are the benefits and challenges of both of these approaches. And again, before we go out to the the rest of the CCIOs on the call, if I could just come to you for your initial thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably an interesting question for Mike because he's going through the process of procurement at the moment. I think one of the issues about a digital transformation, saying, saying that word, or transforming care through digital, um, is getting your trust fully engaged in it. Now, if you've got a trust and you're going to spend a huge amount of cash on a big procurement and you're going to launch on say July the 1st with your new EPR, you are going to have an engraved, engaged senior leadership team. The chief exec knows what's going on, he's very engaged or she's very engaged with it, the medical director, the head of nursing, everyone is going to be on the page because they know this is a lot of money, it's a lot of training and commitment from the trust and if it goes wrong, it'll be an absolute disaster and it might cost them their job, it might cost patient care, you know, lots and lots of risks. So everyone's engaged. However, if you've already got an EPR um, or you buy, you're doing best of breed, so you're buying packages in smaller, you know, we buy one part of your package this year, you're getting something else next year. First of all, it's not such a big expenditure in one go, so it doesn't maybe gain so much attention. And also it's a more it's more of an evolution. So it's difficult to gain traction. And maybe when you're saying, well, we need this resource to do this transformation, you're not your your senior colleagues aren't hearing it because it's not affecting them in such a big way. There's not so much skin in the game. Uh, and I think that's the challenge for doing a more gradual process. Of course, the more gradual process can have advantages in you can um, optimise things as you go. You can get new technology at uh, the right time. You know, if you buy, buy something once, maybe you've got three year old, four year old technology. If you're doing it incrementally, you might be able to get the latest thing. So there's advantage, disadvantage, both approaches. But I'd be interested to hear what my colleagues think because we've all got different models in our in our trust. Mike, can I come to you first with that one? Yeah, sure. So I've 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 um I've lived through 14 or 15 years of incremental deployment and development of of uh, uh, an EPR and it's it's not worked for us and that I think is partly because of the interoperability challenge that I I mentioned earlier and the fact that we've got best of breed systems but there's something you know that you said about that senior leadership engagement which i mentioned earlier in terms of the challenge of leadership when it comes to this role and what what i've observed is that uh when you when you're approaching this from an incremental perspective what seems to have happened certainly within our organization is that we bring in a system let's say we bring in a system for electronic observations and that goes in as a big bang across the organization perhaps so everyone gets it all at once but then it it becomes static so it's a system that's been go that goes in. There's some there's some transformation, some change management at the time, but it's a system that's gone in, and that's how the organisation treats it. And then it moves on to the next thing. Let's say it's it's autocoms or electronic prescribing. So it moves on to that, and it deploys the system. So so what I've observed is that that ends up being quite static. You put one thing on, you move on to the next, and you you don't necessarily see the ongoing investment and engagement in further development of that part of your electronic patient record. Now, I've not put an electronic patient record. We're about to start doing it, hopefully. 
Um, but one of the expectations that I will have from the, the electronic patient record is yes, that the electronic patient record goes in as a big bang, but that's just the starting point. And what I'm hoping to see is a cultural shift in the organization that it sees the opportunity for transformation using digital, not just the EPR. And that requires investment of clinical time into maintaining and developing the system. But it's across the organization rather than just one system at one particular time. And the other risk that we've seen very much, and we see it in terms of behaviors that manifest as we try and engage with staff around the EPR, is that where services have got uh, you know, their own bespoke part of, you know, specialist system for whatever clinical specialty they are, they are understandably emotionally invested in that. And they are very apprehensive about the change that will come in deploying uh, an enterprise-wide, system-wide electronic patient record, despite the advantages that they will get of being on a single system that allows them to see what's happening to their patients in other parts of the organization. And despite the benefits that that will bring to patients who have multiple conditions of which that particular service is only looking after one of them. Um, I'm just glad that we finally got the investment that the organization needs to take us to that level. But as we said from the outset, maybe 20% of the work that goes into it is putting the system in and the technology, ironically, is the easy bit. It's the people bit and the engagement. That's the bit that's going to be uh, that's going to be really challenging, but also really exciting. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Mike. Um, Luke, I want to come to you next, if that's OK. Yeah, thank you. And um, having lived through the full EPR replacement, it's a huge deal for the organisation. Um, uh, a big challenge, an exciting moment. Um, and an opportunity to to sometimes really account for some of that degradation or change that can occur to old systems over time as they're adapted for clinical and operational use over sometimes up to a decade uh, before having to resubsume a new system so for me that that it's an essential moment to to have that pass through to a new system but equally having merged twice as an organization uh, to form uh, the current organisation that I work in, there's a good school of thought and academic support for extending an existing base system. Um, it can be a very efficient way of gradually improving functionality and optimising uh, to work with, with patients and clinicians. So I think, again, for me, there's a life cycle component to this um, that, you know, fortunately, uh, most organisations are not going to be putting in a full electronic patient record or electronic health record replacement too often. Um, and so therefore, that time between the changes is something to plan for uh, as much as uh, for the Big Bang moment. And what often happens is that the Big Bang moment is planned for, but the time between is not planned and costed for. So, so for me, we're, we're trying to make a real case for investing in the optimization and customization and configuration phases. Uh, but that can be challenging when um, budgets are tight. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Luke. Adam, just going back to you, if it being your question. Yeah. And uh, yeah, following on from what Luke says, really, there was also that, you know, the NHS survey on EPR satisfaction. And there, you know, two, and also there's clash reports on EPR satisfaction. You can have the same 
EPR in two different trusts and you can have like 20% satisfaction or 90% satisfaction. Part of that is, did you buy the whole package from the EPR provider or have you got bits of it? So that's one issue. You know, if you buy half a, half a package, it's probably less satisfactory than buying the whole lot. But secondly, it's how you put it in and whether you keep it all updated and, and you work with it well. So, you know, it's hot. You know, is your training good? Is the hardware good? Does the Wi-Fi connect? All the absolute basics. Is the login process quick? Did the computer start up quickly? So if you've got all the, you know, if you've got computers start up slowly and your Wi-Fi connection is poor, you can have the best EPR in the world, but it will still appear rubbish to the end user. So I think that's right. You know, it's not just the cost of putting in the EPR, it's the ongoing cost. And we're not very good, I think. And, um, you know, the NHS is constrained. We haven't got enough staff. It's difficult to find the time to do these things, but you do need more clinicians, nursing staff, admin staff involved in the ongoing work of digital transformation and enhancement, even once the EPR is put in. Otherwise, things will degrade, as Bishoy says. You know, processes get overcomplicated and you need people with an understanding so that you go to meetings and when people want to add, oh, can we add this alert for that box? Can you add another form for this risk? You know, things can get absolutely bloated. The Americans suffer with the problem of billing. So everything comes bloated by billing. We haven't got that in the NHS, thank goodness, but we can get bloated by extra boxes added for safety or for other reasons. And we need to make the we need to occasionally review the pathway and say, can we consolidate what we're doing, make it more efficient and optimize? But that takes time, it takes staff, it takes clinicians and nurses who are on the shop floor who know how systems work to get engaged in the process. And we're not very good at that and we don't invest in that. Brilliant. Thank you for your, your sort of final thoughts on that one, Adam. Um, that will take us on nicely to our last question. And Bishoy, this is a question that you brought, which was, how has the landscape of digital transformation in healthcare evolved over the past few years? And what major trends are you currently observing? Just like the rest of the CCIOs have on the call, if you could just add some context to the question, first of all, and then we can go out to the group. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to think... Uh, of what the future state is like, um, because it gives me hope uh, in the current struggles and and uh, and pressures in the NHS that we see operationally, clinically, and obviously with digital uh, as well. Um, so yeah, and I think this is quite an important question because there's obviously been a huge revolution over the sort of past five years in regards to the introduction of like AI and things like that and what that even means because till this day it's not even been defined yet and can't be defined as it stands. Um, but it's you know for me i think this is this is an interesting one i see clinical digital roles becoming more of a norm within organizations both on the icb primary care and in the acute trust setting as well and it was interesting to hear colleagues on the on the podcast saying that they wrote their own job descriptions because this is something that was completely new uh, but now it's become quite embedded within um within um sort of the the organizational structure um of nhs trust which is very good and is much needed and i think it needs to expand further um to the point where i think there are some cdios across the country and icbs that are clinicians as well which i think is a great step and i think we need more of that sort of clinical digital oversight that bridge that we have uh which is a fortunate position as we stand in as a ccio needs more board representation as well because it's embedded in every single thing that we do and epr is the backbone of a trust if that goes down it affects everybody from the admin staff all the way up to the domestics and, and all the way up to clinicians and consultants 
so yeah so i wanted to hear everybody's sorts of views on that and what they think the, the future holds no takers just yet oh go on um <laughs> i'll come in there just to get the ball rolling um yes i think i mean First of all, we've got to get the basics right. So, you know, it's it's great looking at every, the exciting, shiny stuff like AI, but let's get the data into patients' hands. Let's be able to share data between our organisations. So that's what we're doing at the moment. And I think that's very important. And the new ICB, ICS structures is helping that. So that's that's number one. And then number two, what's going what are we going to be happening you know we in in cancer we're doing lung cancer screening we're going to need ai to be involved in radiology reporting we haven't got enough radiologists so things like ai and uh, is going to come into some of these processes to make them hopefully more efficient and to leverage the staff that we do have to to work most efficiently and then we need um, more decision support. It's amazing that's taking so long to come in. You know, my job is getting increasingly complex. There's so many different treatments uh, coming out all the time. The, part, the patient pathway is becoming ever more complex, but we don't really have decision support. We still have to do manual searches to find information about conditions or to find whether there's clinical trials around the country. Um, hopefully, as we collect more data digitally, we'll have data we can analyse more easily um, and then use that to, and having better EPRs as well, have have decision support baked into that to make our, our life, you know, our clinicians' lives more efficient and to pr prove, you know, to have better care for our patients with more information that's relevant. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Adam. Mike, can I come to you next for that? Yeah, I'll, um, I, I, I'll come to AI in in a minute, but I completely agree with with what you what you're saying about um, getting the basics right. You know, we need to have some firm leadership on getting the right digital infrastructure into the organisations, whether they're acute hospitals, primary care, social care community. We need to find ways of joining those services up, and just being honest, where we don't think services can be joined up because there is an IT barrier that can't be bridged, we've just got to be honest and say, look, you know, let's not sweat this right now. There are other things to do. I think the things that are changing uh, are around digital literacy, for example. So, uh, you know, patients and, and their carers uh, becoming more and more digitally literate. Um, I uh, did, a, did a home visit for a patient. It was actually before COVID. She was 96 years old and I was disturbing her, her uh, online share trading. So, so age is age is just one of those things that uh, I, I we need to be mindful of it, but we we shouldn't be assuming that just because someone is of a certain demographic that that they can't be digitally um, digitally empowered. I think the culture within the NHS has to change how it views uh, investment in uh, in digital needs to change. At the moment, there's still this demarcation between the health informatics service and everyone else. Uh, it seems certainly in my organisation there is, and we're trying to we're trying to bridge that, but it's really really difficult. So I have a number of junior doctors, for example, who are really interested in this sort of work, and they understand that they're only with us for six or twelve months, perhaps, and then they're going to moving on, and nothing happens within within IT in a hospital in that sort of time window. But they they want to learn and they want to develop a career which has a, a, a digital a digital stream to it. And we you know, health education in England is 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 talking about providing those things. But if I say to them, well you can go and do a master's at whichever university in uh, some in, actually the funding 
the resources for them to do that, the time out of work to do that. It's just not part of how we do things in the minute, and that has to change. Plus the new roles that will have to come in. So within our business case for our EPR, we made no uh, predication on saving money from cutting admin, for example. Now, that's not to say that maybe the number of people in admin will change, but the opportunities will be there for new roles for upskilling, I would hope. But the culture of the NHS needs to change to, to, to accept that and to adapt its business models to accommodate uh, accommodate those people. And then uh, artificial intelligence, I think, you know, it's it's exciting and scary in equal measures. I think we'd we'd agree with that. I think particularly those of us who work in healthcare and, you know, hallucinate being the Oxford English University's the, the dictionary's um, uh, word of the year reflects uh, a very real threat to us as uh, as clinicians uh, because we rely on uh, research evidence that we are not directly responsible for for building our clinical practices and making decisions with patients. And then, uh, you know, I completely com agree with Adam about the challenges of personalised healthcare. When we've got patients with increasingly complex data sets being presented to us, that's way beyond my skill set to, to even pass that information, never mind make a detailed analysis of it when I've got a dozen patients in my results clinic to go through. And I do think that um, artificial intelligence is going to have a huge role to play in helping us with decision making there. Plus, there's the population health, plus there's the specific technologies around uh, radiology and histopathology and just helping the the sheer volume of, of, of reporting workload to go through. But um, I think that we need to be careful that that doesn't run away from us. Brilliant. Thank you for your input there, Mike. Um, Luke, can I come to you on this one? Yeah, I'd like to put forward an argument that the answer to this question goes right back to the citizen, person and patient in terms of what is it uh, that uh, I would like as a as a person or a citizen and uh, you know a patient uh, to achieve, um, and if that question is asked very clearly, it can help to make the case for investing more in digital technologies to support health and well-being and happiness as opposed to investing in other things. So, for example, people may wish to have a greater investment of the NHS pound um, in technologies that support health and well-being, as opposed to spending a lot of money on expensive operations. And if that question is framed and approached correctly, then healthcare systems can consider um, a greater investment in, in digital than they have at the moment. And if indeed the answer is that that investment is not going to be as high as um, it could be, um, and it and it is in other industries, then what do you give away um, as a consequence of that? And it might be that you give away having really good kit, um, or it might be that you use other systems that take your data and use it for other purposes, but you get a good product. So for example, there's lots of AI support, um, speech recognition technology that's available um, that we can download immediately on a phone. But that information is processed um, and, and passed on in lots of ways that, that are perhaps unintended. So that's the scary bit for me. 
but there's also a benefit to that. So I think we need a very close relationship between what people want to achieve and how they want their, their money spent um, as, a, as a primary start to what kind of investment case uh, we're going to make with our citizens. Brilliant. Thank you for that, for that insight there, Luke. Mike, I want to bounce that one back to you, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. I, I just like to I pick up on the point you started making about, you know, what do I want? What do we want as citizens? I think that's that's hugely important uh, and, and it almost takes us full circle. And I was thinking a little bit about the challenge. Oh, I'm trying to paraphrase um, Sir Chris, uh, Chris Whitty when he was talking about three different types of healthcare that exist there's prevention, there's palliation, and then there's the bit in the middle, which is what we do, which is the very expensive, acute bit. And the need, uh, if we're going to continue delivering the acute bit, to actually uh, reduce the numbers of patients who are escalating into that acute sector. So we need to invest more in prevention. So how do we do that when as an NHS, we're already massively invested and and as citizens, you know, the, the country is hugely invested in the NHS as being big, shiny hospitals. So how do we how do we take that shift and invest into prevention and, and, and make that investment work? And then at the other end, actually, palliation, how do we approach the last you know, years of life when we know that that is when most healthcare money is spent on us as individuals? How do we use digital to make sure that we get the most from that investment? How do we how do we um, how do we define and um, realistic medicine? How do we how do we as a society take that on? Uh, and then you know what is the role for digital in helping us with that? Really, thank thank you for your thoughts on that, there, Mike. Um, I suppose that takes us towards the the end of our podcast now. So. Before we do end the podcast, I just want to say a massive thank you again to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts today. Um, once again, our guests on today's podcast have been Bishoy Dimitri, CCIO at Oxford University Hospitals, Luke Gompels, CCIO at Somerset NHS Foundation Trust, Mike Green, CCIO at Torbay and South Devon NHS Foundation Trust, and Adam Dango, CCIO at University Hostels Bristol and Western NHS Foundation Trust. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message for that too. I'm Matt and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me on matthew.plant at evolution-contract.co.uk or you can visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thanks again to our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again next time.